Hi, I'm Rick Schwartz. And I'm Ebony Monet. Welcome to Amazing Wildlife, where we explore unique stories of wildlife from around the world and uncover fascinating animal facts. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, an international nonprofit conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. They're black and white and loved all over. This episode's animal is an international treasure protected by law. The giant panda is affectionately known as a cat bear in its native China. Illustrations of the giant panda can be found in Chinese art dating back thousands of years. Giant pandas have also fascinated people living outside of China, first described for science by a French missionary in 1869. Rick, what do you think it is about the panda that captures so many people's hearts and attention? Oh, honestly, Ebony, I have to say there's something about the way they look and the way they move and the way they eat. It just seems so relatable. I will completely admit when I started the San Diego Zoo over 20 years ago, I had never seen a giant panda in person. And I knew they were popular and thought like all bears, they were pretty interesting. But I can still remember the first day I saw one in person. And I will I will fully admit I was completely enamored. I sat there outside of the habitat and just watched for I don't even know how long. And I can't say exactly what it is about them, but yes, they are easy to fall in love with. Yes, and so many people, I'm sure, can relate. Well, it's in the name, but are giant panda bears actually bears? Ah, yes, Ebony, the puzzle of the panda bear. (laughs) What are they related to? I can say for years, scientists have been debating about this. Some thought that the giant panda was a true bear with special adaptations for living in the bamboo forest, while others thought they were more closely related to the raccoon family, while others believe they belong in their completely own separate scientific family. Now, through studying the genetic code, or the giant panda's DNA, scientists have confirmed that the giant pandas are related to bears. And even though we knew that giant pandas are similar to other bears in their general looks, the way they walk and climb, their skull characteristics, their social system and reproductive biology... Having the ability to confirm they are a bear through the DNA puts the long debate to rest. Are they also solitary like other bears we've discussed? Yes, Ebony. Like other bears, giant pandas are solitary by nature, and they will defend their territory when needed. Because pandas need 25 to 80 pounds of bamboo a day depending upon the individual's needs, it only makes sense that having another panda around eating the bamboo is not something you'd enjoy. If two pandas should happen to cross paths, they will growl, swat, and lunge at each other in an effort to defend their territory. It rarely escalates into a full-blown fight, but it can, and giant pandas can deliver a very powerful bite, which can be dangerous. And although we just established that giant pandas are solitary and don't like having other pandas around, there are, of course, two exceptions to this. First, the very brief mating season, and I mean brief, we're talking a couple of days here. And second, when a mother has a cub. Rick, that leads nicely to my next questions about mating. You mentioned that pandas will tolerate each other during mating season, but if they spend so much of their time apart, how do they pair up in the first place? Although pandas are solitary as adults, they are exposed to the scents of other neighboring pandas that have crossed over their path days or weeks before. If a female's body is getting ready for breeding, she will start to use scent marking to let the neighboring males know. 
If a male comes across her ascent a few days later, he can pick up on the change in her status, going from stay in your own territory, buddy, to hey, let's connect sometime soon. Now, once the male has identified this change in the female's status, he remains closer to this female, assessing her status more frequently and keeping closer tabs on her so he can be present when she's ready to breed. And this is important, as there is only a two to three day period that the female is receptive to breeding. When she's no longer receptive, the two pandas move on with their solitary lives. It's fascinating that the pandas can determine all of that just from their sense of smell. Pandas are arguably the most vocal of all bears. One of the most distinctive of the pandas vocalization, I understand, is referred to as the bleat, which is described as similar to the sound a lamb or a goat kid might make. It's considered a greeting. Rick, can you describe some of the other sounds that pandas might make? I'm glad you said described. I thought you were going to ask me to do a bleed sound, and that would be bad. <laughs> but yes, oddly enough, the seemingly quiet giant panda is the most vocal of all the bears. And as much as we tend to equate roaring with bears, they don't actually do as much as the movies and television would kind of have us believe. And in the case of the giant panda, their main vocalization includes honks, huffs, barks, and growls, along with a goat-like bleat that you mentioned. Young cubs are even known to croak and squeal rather loudly to get their mom's attention. And of course, being solitary, the giant panda uses other ways to communicate because vocalizations only travel so far in the bamboo forest. And both males and females have a scent gland under their short tail that secretes a waxy substance used to leave scent marks. Uh, the analogy of this, of course, is that it's kind of like leaving a post-it note for other pandas to find. The scent marking post-it notes can tell other pandas to stay away, like we mentioned, or might be ready for breeding. And if they're a threat or not, or just passing through, things like that. Now, many of us are familiar with the act of animals leaving their scents or are marking their territory, as it's called. I immediately think of our own family's puppy who, when we walk, he doesn't pass a tree without leaving behind <laughs> something. But in the case of the giant panda, um, I guess along with mating, how does the scent they leave behind communicate so many different messages um, to other pandas? Well, Ebony, when giant pandas scent mark trees, rocks, bamboo, and, and bushes, our nose can pick up on the smell from about a foot away, and we usually consider it kind of stinky. But giant pandas have a much stronger sense of smell, and it's able to pick up on a lot more information than you and I can. The San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance has done a lot of work with giant pandas, and we've discovered that giant pandas can detect the sex, age, reproductive condition, social status, and even individual identity of the scent maker, as well as how long the scent has been there. Giant pandas are only about the size of a stick of butter at birth, and they're hairless and helpless. Rick, what does it take for them to survive, and what's the role, if any, of the male pandas or the um, female adult pandas? Like many other solitary species, the male panda does not help raise the cubs. In fact, the female does not want them around after breeding. The mother giant panda takes care of the tiny cub, usually cradling it in one paw and then holding it close to her chest. For several days after birth, the mother does not leave the den, not even to eat or drink. Then as the cub develops and grows, it will open its eyes around 50 to 60 days of age, and by 10 weeks, the cub begins to crawl and move around. At around 14 weeks of age, their teeth start to come in, and the mother and cub spend less time in their den. 
By 21 weeks, the cub is able to walk pretty well. And at that time, it'll start to play with its mom and even wander further from the mother to explore. At seven to nine months of age, it starts testing out bamboo, first mouthing and chewing and playing with it, and then eventually eating it. And then, well, around 16 to 20 months of age, we see the mother panda sending her offspring out on its own so she can prepare to have her next cub. Today, pandas have fewer predators than they have historically. Unfortunately, tigers and leopards are only found in reduced numbers in what remains of their natural habitat. Still, it's estimated that there are just over 1,800 giant pandas left in the world. Rick, what are the pandas' present-day threats to its survival? Unfortunately for pandas, China's forests have experienced dramatic change over the last several decades. The country has more than a billion people. And just like in the United States, with more people have come more roads, homes, cities, and farms. Natural resources are needed to support all of this growth. So there is mining and harvesting of trees in what is considered a giant panda habitat. The giant panda's range shrunk as trees were removed in logging operations and land was cleared for farming. In fact, panda suitable habitat decreased by half between 1974 and 1985. Populations of pandas have become small and isolated, hemmed in by civilization. And some panda habitat has literally been encircled by farms, villages, and business sites, creating sort of these habitat islands between which pandas can't safely move without coming upon human communities or crossing dangerous highways. And fragmented populations like this aren't just something we see in giant pandas. This is something we see in any area where human population has grown significantly. Let's move on now and, and talk about the international effort to save the panda. Rick, what can you tell us about like what's being done about these situations? Oh, of course, Ebony. It definitely bears talking about because a lot has been done over the last 40 years and it has had a very positive impact. China has set up 65 panda reserves that protect panda habitat from further development. Some are off limits to people completely, while others are shared use areas like our national forests here in the United States. Another very important thing China has done is to create natural corridors connecting some reserves to help panda populations stay connected, kind of eliminating those habitat islands we talked about earlier. Today, China is currently gaining forest land. The government has started policies like the Grain to Green program, which provides grain and cash to farmers who abandon farming on steep slopes and replant these areas with natural forests and grasslands. But we're still not sure if these newly forested areas are quite suitable for pandas. And so it'll take some time, of course, but it is definitely a step in the right direction. And it's very important to point out that it takes an international effort when it comes to conservation. Back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, biologists didn't know if they could save pandas from extinction. Little was known about their behavior and pandas did not reproduce well in zoos. Then, San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance partnered with Chinese colleagues and the Chinese government, and by working together, they created and implemented successful conservation strategies that resulted in the giant panda being moved from being an endangered species to a vulnerable species, or one step further away from extinction. Now, of course, that does not mean we slow down or stop our conservation efforts. In fact, it means what we've done over the last 30 plus years is working, and we need to keep doing more of it. And coming up, we'll talk more about the global conservation efforts to save the giant panda with Ron Swaysgood, the Director of Conservation Science, Recovery, Ecology with San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. That's right after this. 
And now it's time for the San Diego Zoo Minute, an opportunity for you to learn what's new at the zoo. Earlier this year, the San Diego Zoo Safari Park welcomed three new residents, eight-year-old female African lions Malika, Zuri, and Amira from the Caldwell Zoo in Texas. The three lions, who are sisters, curiously explored their new home at Lion Camp within days of their arrival. They were shy at first, but soon showed great confidence as they became comfortable with their new surroundings. And here's a fun fact. They are the great grand cubs of the San Diego Zoo Safari Park's beloved male lion, Izu, and lioness Mina, who lived there for 18 years. Did you know pandas poop a lot, as much as 50 times a day? That's one of the ways biologists look for pandas in their natural habitat, by finding their poop. Well, the scientific term is much nicer. It's called scat. In 1987, the first giant pandas arrived at the San Diego Zoo. For more than 30 years, people from all over the world fell in love with China's giant pandas, and a new era of panda conservation began. The San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance collaborated with Chinese partners to protect and care for the giant panda. We're going to talk more about those strides with Ron Swaysgood. Director of Recovery Ecology with San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Hi, Ron. Hi, Ebony. Ron, the arrival of the first giant pandas to the San Diego Zoo just really kicked off a wave of excitement. What do you think it is about the giant panda that's so endearing to so many people? Absolutely. The panda, of course, is the iconic symbol of hope and friendship with China. Of course, there's the cute factor, and of course, they're peaceful, gentle creatures. So everyone loves a panda. Everyone loves them, and they are so cute. So how did the San Diego Zoo come to be one of only a handful of places in the U.S. to house the giant panda? Right. Well, having pandas is, of course, a rare privilege. It's bestowed by the Chinese government, which owns all pandas. It took us years of effort negotiating with the Chinese back in the 1990s. And of course it paid off as we were the first zoo to get a long-term loan. And of course, you know, San Diego Zoo's prestigious reputation didn't hurt in that process. Ron, you've had the unique opportunity to experience pandas in their natural habitat. What was it like the first time you saw a giant panda in nature? Oh, yeah, that was a long time coming, I'll say. Uh, The first few years I worked with pandas, I was working in one of the breeding centers in China in the Wolong Nature Reserve. And so I wasn't working with pandas in nature, but I frequently got out into the mountains above the centers and I found signs of pandas. It's easy to find the signs, but I never saw a panda. So it wasn't until 2006 when we started a field project working with our colleagues at the Chinese Academy of Science one of the most prestigious academic institutions in all of China. We set out to search for pandas in the wild during the breeding season. And the reason to look for pandas then is because that's the one time of the year where they're kind of noisy. They're making lots of vocalizations as part of the mating. So we had one of those long days in the field and we kept hearing them, but we couldn't find them. So it was starting to get a little late in the day and I sat down kind of despondent ready to turn back, thinking yet another day was going to pass without seeing a panda. And all of a sudden, this 
big panda head with a little bit of blood trickling from his face emerges from the bamboo. And it was one of the males that had been fighting another male over access to a female. And yeah, so he saw me and he started to approach. Now, pandas are pretty gentle, but this guy's testosterone was up from all the fighting. So I didn't feel quite comfortable. So I took a couple of steps back. And when I did that, he kind of startled and he moved off. And then he went to a tree and he did a handstand and he peed on the tree. (laughs) And interestingly, just a couple of years before that, we had done a study to figure out why they do this handstand. And it turns out it's a dominant signal. So he was basically telling me, hey, I'm the dominant bear in this force. So uh, you better watch out. Be forewarned. So back to the the San Diego Zoo. As guests at the San Diego Zoo enjoyed experiencing the giant pandas, behind the scenes, there was important conservation work being done. Um, San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance's reproductive science team worked with Chinese colleagues to actually artificially inseminate a female panda in 1999. Ron, how significant of a milestone was that for giant panda conservation? Right. Well, this was a very significant, a major milestone for panda conservation, especially considering at that time how much trouble everyone was having to get them to mate naturally. And our reproductive science and endocrinology teams had spent a lot of time at the Wolong Breeding Center in China, both teaching our colleagues there and learning from them. And they brought a lot of know-how back to San Diego. And they applied this and were able to successfully inseminate our female, Bayuin. And of course, it resulted in our firstborn, Huamei, the first uh, surviving cub ever in the United States. And it's an important tool for us to have in our toolbox. Um, Although we've been able to address many of the challenges with natural mating, to this day, artificial insemination is still a useful tool when some pairs just don't want to mate. What challenges might giant pandas face when reproducing, particularly in human care? Well, if we think back to the 80s and 90s and much of the history of the pandas conservation breeding programs, the panda was the butt of late night jokes on talk shows. They were kind of the poster child for not knowing how to mate. So these were challenges that we set out to address with our teams at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, working with our colleagues in China. We were working to improve nutrition and welfare, understand their reproductive physiology, and study their behavior. Through our studies, we learned that one of the major problems was communication breakdown. So wild pandas like to stick to themselves. They're a solitary species. But when the breeding season comes, they start to communicate with one another through scent. And we found that if we gave them opportunities to communicate with one another, that actually reduced the aggression between the male and the female and increased sexual motivation. And it really helped to get them starting to breed again. And it was very successful. In the end, we had six cubs born here at the San Diego Zoo. And uh, we helped turn around the breeding program in China. How did it feel to make some strides in the right direction after being part of that collaborative effort? For me personally, it was a career defining experience just being a part of that. I was really in awe of all the work that our teams here at San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and in China, our colleagues and other international groups of conservationists and scientists, and very, very importantly, the Chinese government. They all work together to make this happen. And all of this is giving the panda a chance at its future. 
it really motivates me to keep trying with other species too, of course. I guess to sum it up, the lesson I learned was don't give up. Definitely do not give up. So how does the conservation of the giant panda possibly relate to the conservation of other animals? I'm very glad you asked that question because, you know, the panda gets so much attention, but it's really important that we learn from this experience and that other species benefit. And pandas are really the quintessential umbrella or flagship species. As an umbrella species, when we protect habitat for pandas, we're also protecting all the other species that live there. We also know that establishing these panda reserves are good for people because, for example, Protecting forests reduces erosion and helps with flood control, saving thousands of human lives and billions of dollars. It's, of course, also sequestering carbon to help reduce the impacts of climate change. In uh, one analysis, uh, we were able to show that for every dollar spent on panda reserves, there's a, at least a tenfold return in investment that help people as well. The story of the the giant panda is not just one of conservation, but also diplomacy. How has the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance maintained its relationship with your partners in China over the years? Yeah, it's been a very important relationship, and we've done a lot to nurture that relationship. And we learned early on that you first have to develop trust. And to do that, you really need a lot of face time and you need to get to know the people that you're collaborating with. So over the years, our teams from San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance made dozens and dozens of trips to visit our colleagues in China and we hosted them here at the San Diego Zoo. So that's really the foundation of all of our accomplishments. And if you allow me, I'll tell my personal story of my epiphany. Please do. <laughs> So yeah, I call this the panda basketball diplomacy story. So when I first arrived in China at the Wulong Breeding Center, I was full of vim and vigor and I was eager to apply my research questions to figure out how to get pandas mating again. And, you know, I arrived and of course it was February of 1996 and uh, it was cold and wet. And to be honest, that first month or so, my to become friends and colleagues weren't particularly enthusiastic about me being there. I was kind of irrelevant. So I went to bed cold and lonely many a night. Then one day the sun came out and the guys got out of basketball. And I was thinking, huh, well, you know, I shoot hoops. It's been a couple of years, but I'm a bit rusty, but maybe I'll get out there. So I went out and I joined them and we had a great time playing basketball. And next thing I know, they're inviting me to join them in the uh, staff kitchen for all the meals, which was, you know, warm and friendly and loud. And I was going to their houses for dinner, I even joined them for vacations. And that was all wonderful. And of course, the byproduct of that is our collaboration got much, much better. At first, they joined in because they wanted to help me. And then they became committed. And we could just work together and accomplish all these wonderful things. But the lesson I learned is, you know, make friends first. You have to build that trust first. And basketball sounds like it helped to bring you guys all together. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. So what experience um, for you stands out the most when it comes to your time caring for pandas? Oh, there are so many, you know, of course, that time I first saw the panda in the wild stands out. 
just the overall efforts to turn around the breeding program and all the great friendships and collaboration along the way. But perhaps most of all, it was getting to know some of the individual pandas there and getting to look inside their lives was really rewarding, both personally and professionally. And people want to know, why did the giant pandas leave the San Diego Zoo in 2019? Well, our pandas returned to China because it was baked into our loan agreement. You know, we had a loan and the loan period was up and they needed to return to their mother country. Uh, We were simply honoring that agreement that was spelled out in our contract. So what do you think will be the legacy of the giant panda in the world of wildlife conservation? Well, I think their legacy should be you can make a difference. You know, if you roll up your sleeves and you put in the hard work, you can move the needle for endangered species conservation. Knowing that you really can turn things around if people and governments rally to support a species, it's so empowering and it helps ward off despair, right? So in a word, the giant panda legacy is hope. In conservation, of course, we all need more hope and having a good success story, or at least one in the making, is a good reason to have hope. Thank you so much, Ron. We've been talking to Ron Swayscud, Director of Recovery Ecology, about the beloved giant panda. Thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed learning about the beloved giant panda. And believe it or not, that wraps up season one of Amazing Wildlife, a San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance podcast. Make sure to catch up on all of the episodes, so be sure to subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows, because when you subscribe, you'll also catch when season two comes out. Now, Ebony, I do have to ask before we go, what was your favorite episode of all of these episodes we've done? Rick, you put me on the spot. Um, It's hard to choose just one episode. Fair enough. I would say I think I like the most just animals that clearly show like adaptations um, because it's just fascinating to see how science works. And then I also like the the animals that have the strong bonds with their offspring, like the orangutan um, comes to mind. How about you? Oh, goodness. For me, uh, I would honestly have to say... I think the the April 1st episode, we lucked out that April Fool's Day was on a Friday, so it gave us an opportunity to write a script about how animals fool us and, and the different things they do. And the thing I liked about that episode is we covered a lot of different species, and I thought that was kind of a fun, playful episode, but also, you know, got to teach people a lot with that. That was a good one. All right, fair enough. Well, I'm Ebony Monet. And I'm Rick Schwartz. Thanks for listening. If you would like to find out more about San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, please visit sdzwa.org. Amazing Wildlife is a production of iHeartRadio. Our producer is Nakia Swinton, and our executive producer is Marcy DePina. Our audio engineer and editor is Sierra Spring. For more shows from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.